invite you to take your Bibles this morning and go to the book of Acts. Again, Acts chapter 14. Acts 14, and we're going to read from verse number 19 to verse number 28. Acts 14 from verse 19 and to verse 28. Once you found your place, can I ask you to stand as we read God's Word together, please? Thanks. The Word of God says, But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples and encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia, and when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Atalia, and from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that had been fulfilled that they had fulfilled, sorry. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, and they remained no little time with the disciples. And verse 21 again, when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and so on. And we trust that God will add blessing to the reading of his word. Please have a seat. Paul and Barnabas have been faithfully proclaiming the gospel in Cyprus and Pisidian Antioch and Iconium, and then they moved to Lystra and Derbe. They'd seen God open a door of faith to the Gentiles as well as the Jews, and they've experienced some opposition from uh, to the gospel from first the Jewish source Elymas, and then Jew- jealous, unbelieving, and disobedient Jews, and lastly from idolatrous Greeks and Gentiles in Lystra. That opposition had come in the form of political and religious opposition. And angry Gentiles stirred up by the Jews and a deceptive opposition from those seeking to worship, much misguided. They've made the gospel witness despite that opposition. It was a witness, as we saw last week, compelled by their love for the lost. And it was compelling because it was a spirit-filled, humble witness to the gospel of Christ. And so the gospel triumphs through faithful witnesses. But what was their goal in their patient, persistent witnessing? It wasn't just witnessing for the sake of witnessing. I was reminded as we went out into Noble Park yesterday with the gospel, and there was uh, another group from a different particular faith, and they were standing there with their, their rack full of tracks, just standing there. I think they're trying to earn points to get somewhere just witnessing for the sake of witnessing. But these men were witnessing with a purpose, a goal in mind. They witnessed to achieve the goal of Christ's commission in Matthew 28, verses 16 to 20, to make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe and obey all that Christ commanded us with the assurance of his abiding presence with us. So the gospel triumphs when God uses the preaching teaching, and life examples of ordinary disciples to call men and women to be born again and become disciples of Christ. Well, how does it triumph? 
How does the gospel triumph in making disciples? And the answer comes to us from Colossians chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, where Paul writes that God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. The gospel triumphs because it is the power of God unto salvation, salvation from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of God. The gospel is the message of freedom for all who believe. The triumph of the gospel is that it sets us free from slavery to sin and brings us and makes us slaves to righteousness. It makes us sons and daughters of the living God and disciples of Christ, our Savior, our Master, and our Teacher. And every truly born-again believer in Christ is a disciple. Regardless of your age, your situation, your ministry, or your role, we're all disciples of Christ. Every truly born-again pastor or elder or deacon or church member, every missionary, every evangelist is a disciple of Christ for all of our lives. Older, wiser, and mature believers are still disciples. They're still learning. Brand new, truly born-again believers are His disciples. But sadly, not every person who claims to be a believer in Christ lives in true discipleship to Christ as Savior and Lord. Many have failed to heed Christ's call to faith and repentance, to count both the costs and the blessings of discipleship. Many who claim to be believers are still living in sin and rebellion against God and His Word, and without genuine repentance... And turning toward God in faith, they will hear Jesus' terrifying words in Matthew 7, 23. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Remember, brothers and sisters, it's not those who have done great works in Christ's name who enter the kingdom of God, but those who do the will of the Father who will be welcome. That's what Jesus said. Discipleship is about doing God's will not just knowing it. Uh, for those of you who came out last Sunday uh, night, we had a great message. Uh, Marcel Enrique, I think that's how you say his name, uh, from Voice of the Martyrs was here, and he shared a great message from Matthew 28. And I marveled yet again at how his message tied directly into what I wanted to bring this morning. And he asked the question, why is it that we don't teach disciples to obey? So often we stop at teaching disciples to just know the truth. Knowing the truth is absolutely essential, but without knowing, becoming, doing, it doesn't help. And we become packed up and puffed up full of lots of information, lots of knowledge. But Jesus said it's those who do the will of the Father who are welcomed in. Discipleship is about doing God's will, not just knowing it. And so as I worked through the week and thought about this text and think about what he said, two questions drove me along as I read verse 21 in particular. What is required to make disciples of Christ? And what does it mean to be a disciple of Christ? So using what it says of Paul and Barnabas here is kind of a springboard. I want us to consider this morning this great truth, this great topic of discipleship. First of all, in making disciples. In Acts chapter 14, verses 21 and 22, Luke records that when they had preached the gospel to that city 
and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. So what is required to make disciples as Paul and Barnabas did? And I would argue it comes right out of our text. Making disciples, first of all, requires the preaching of the gospel. We see it clearly in the storyline leading up to this. In Acts 13, verses 16 to 41, we have Paul preaching the gospel to Jews and Gentile God-fearers in the synagogue. In Acts 14, verse 1, he spoke the gospel in such a way that many believed. In Acts 14, verses 15 to 17, Paul preaches the gospel in Lystra outside of a Jewish context to purely Gentile pagan listeners. And brothers and sisters, there cannot be disciples without the preaching and sharing and distributing of the gospel to unbelievers. So what is the gospel message that we proclaim? It's this. And it's no trouble whatsoever for me to take five minutes to go back and rehearse and recount the gospel because it is great for the souls of believers to hear the gospel again. And for those sitting here who have not believed, you need to hear it. The gospel is that God is the creator of all things, heaven and earth, visible and invisible. That all of us, men and women, are God's highest creation. We're created to represent and glorify God in all that we do. But because we're all sinners, we sin, and so we're alienated. We're cut off and separated from God. And mankind left to ourselves stands without hope under the judgment of the almighty, just, and holy God. But, but the good news, the gospel is that this same God of justice in grace sent Christ. Christ is truly man and truly God. One person with two natures. He was born of a virgin Mary, lived, ministered, and died in our place. Christ suffered horrific emotional and physical pain on the cross. Christ shed his blood. Horrific, grisly scene of the shedding of the blood of Christ to pay the just penalty for our sin. He died and he rose in our place to pay the debt we could never pay, but only he could. God in grace now offers full forgiveness to us for our sins. God in grace offers to apply Christ's righteousness to us, and by grace he further offers to declare us instantly righteous and to steadily, progressively, to make us holy and blameless over the course of our lives. God overlooked men's sin in the past, but now, today, he calls all mankind everywhere to receive his forgiveness by trusting in him, to repent and turn away from committing any further sin, to come to Christ, believing in him as Lord and God, to come as disciples in submission to Christ as Lord and Master, to come in love for Christ as our Savior, our friend, and our God. My friends sitting there, Listening, watching, have you heard the still small voice of God calling you to come? Do you know his peace, his joy of forgiveness of your sins? Do you believe in Christ? It's one thing to know it up here, but do you believe it? Will you come to Christ 
to believe in him, to obey him as master and Lord. I make that call. I make an invitation now. We'll hear it again at the end, but I want to make it right now. Will you come? What holds you back? Listen, the gospel triumphs as disciples are made, and we make disciples by first preaching the gospel, but it doesn't end there. Making disciples requires also time and energy to form and build relationships. Paul said it in 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 8 that he wanted to share with them not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, their lives. So making disciples requires us, secondly, to exemplify the gospel through our lives. Last Sunday, we considered the compelling witness of Paul and Barnabas as they spoke in such a way that many believed the gospel. A compelling witness is also a Christ-imitating witness. Just as Christ was willing to come and live and minister and share his life with his disciples before dying to save them and us, so also Paul imitated Christ as a weak, sinful, and failing human. He stayed in places as long as he could, sharing his life, allowing them to see the example of the life he was calling them to. Can you imagine this guy comes into town and preaches this great message of the gospel? The local businessmen, the local religious leaders gather a mob and stone him to death or close to it. And then they pick him up and they can drag him all the way out of the city and dump him somewhere outside the city walls and come back in. Finished. And the disciples saw that's what this life means. And then... As we know, we stood up and walked back into the city. And I can't help but feel sorry for those two guys standing there, dusting themselves off. They just faced stoning Paul, and he goes walking by. <laughs> he must have wondered, what happened there? We thought we stoned him. But listen, he set an example for them. He showed them what it means. If you follow Christ like this, this is what you can expect. He even came back and told them, it's through tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. He showed them what it meant to live the life as a disciple. In Acts 14, verse 3, Paul and Barnabas remained for a long time. They lived among them and spoke boldly for the Lord. In Acts 18, 9-11, Paul and Silas and Timothy stayed for 18 months living among the Corinthians and teaching them the Word of God. In Acts 14, 19-20, Paul was willing to die for his witness to Christ and the gospel. He was stoned, not to death, but close to it. His life exemplified the gospel and displayed the sufferings of Christ to those who had never known or seen Christ. Likewise, brothers and sisters, we make disciples by exemplifying the truths of the gospel. We live our lives as an example of faith in God for others to see. We live our lives as an example of repentance of sin, as an example of dying to sin, dying to self, and dying to the world, as an example of godliness and holiness. We live our lives as an example of love for God and love for the church and love for our neighbors. We make disciples by preaching the gospel and by exemplifying the gospel that we preach. We live lives devoted to Scripture, to prayer, and to God as examples for those who are younger in the faith. You say, does the Bible anywhere tell us to do that? 
And I'm so glad you asked because it does. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 12 to 16, Paul commanded Timothy and the elders at Ephesus uh, to let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. He said, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them. Why? So that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and the teaching. Persist in in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. He talks about an example in verse number 12. He talks about in verse 15 that all may see their progress. The goal of Paul's instruction to Timothy is that the others in the church may see the example he's setting. He's not saying we earn our salvation by godly living. He's saying we prove the reality of our salvation by godly living that sets an example to illustrate for others what it looks like to truly follow and do the will of our Heavenly Father. Brothers and sisters, listen. If it's true that a picture is worth a thousand words, then surely a Christian life faithfully lived before God is a thousand living sermons. Right? So what are you hearing? What are you seeing? What example are you displaying? You know what stopped me cold this week? That thought. And even though, or sorry, because Timothy is addressed as an elder, I will now make this statement, which I wish I didn't have to make, but I feel compelled to make it. Brother elders, that's only three of us. With a clear conscience, will we stand before this church and invite them to imitate us as we imitate Christ? For that is both Paul's example and the Scripture's command. Elders, there's only three of us. We need more, but there's only three of us right now. Listen, we have three main ideas in mind. We communicate the gospel truth to the people of God, the truth of the Word of God to the people of God. Secondly, we commend the people of God to God in prayer. And thirdly, we are to set an example for what it means to live a godly Christian life. If you think that doesn't scare me, I know full well there's a greater judgment for those who teach the Word. That scares But brothers and sisters, older, mature brothers and sisters in Christ, the same question has to land on your doorstep. Will you, with a clear conscience, stand before other believers and invite them to imitate you as you imitate Christ? Because that's what Paul's talking about. That's how we make disciples. Younger believers, there's always someone younger than you in the faith. You can set an example for them. So you say, but who who do I look to? We look to Christ. We look to Christ to find the perfect example to follow. We look to Paul's life to find an example to follow. We look to other older godly ones in our own context. Listen, I told you about Uncle Jack, I don't know how many times, and some of you are laughing, you can hear the stories coming. Uncle Jack was that great guy who took me alongside, taught me how to study. 
taught me how to read the Word of God, taught me how to prepare sermons and all that. You know, he taught me without ever opening his mouth? Godliness. You know why? Jack never compromised. Okay, you could say, never? Okay, maybe he did, but I didn't see it. I'll give you that. But you know what? For as much as he could, his life was consistent with his preaching. And that had an impact. That old fuddy-duddy of a brethren guy, God bless him, young men flocked to be with him. We considered it something to be really, you're doing well if Uncle Jack wants to spend an evening with you. Because we knew there was a godly guy who wanted to invest time in us. And it's something we all craved to see an example of that lived out. Brothers and sisters, elders, deacons, older men and women in this church, listen, I'm going to ask again, will we with a clear conscience stand before this church and invite them to imitate us as we imitate Christ? Because that is Paul's example and the Scripture's command. So to follow on from Marcel's great message last Sunday night, how do we make disciples, teaching them to obey all that Jesus taught us? We do it firstly by preaching the gospel. We do it secondly by setting an example. And thirdly, we make disciples teaching the gospel truth. We don't need to say too much to explain this, but think of it this way. Just as surely as a mother would not labor for hours and hours to give birth to her little beautiful baby and then refuse to feed it, first with milk, then with bread and meat as it grows older, so also having preached the gospel, having prayed for conversions, and having seen them born again, it is our responsibility to obey Scripture by feeding and teaching those new disciples with the Word of God. Scripture commands us in 2 Timothy 3-4 to to patiently teach and train and rebuke and reprove and exhort disciples with God's inspired Word. Teaching them and feeding them from the Word of God will re- revive their souls. Now, some of you come to church looking desperately for that revival in your soul, to be refreshed, to have your vision of Christ cleared and sharpened, to see Him a little better. Teaching and feeding from the Word of God will make the simple disciple wise. It will rejoice the hearts of the downcast disciple. It will enlighten the eyes of the doubting disciple. And it will warn the wandering, straying disciple. And it will bring promises of great reward for the obedient disciple. And we see it here in Acts 14.22. Paul and Barnabas returned to the cities they had already preached the gospel in. They returned to the cities where they had been persecuted for preaching the gospel. And what they do? They strengthened the souls of the disciples and encouraged them to continue in the faith and told them that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. How did they strengthen and encourage the disciples? By imparting the biblical truth that fuels hope and brings courage. By comforting them with the truth that it is through many tribulations that we will surely enter the kingdom of God. Brother and sister in Christ, listen. Preaching the gospel may not be your calling. Teaching the truth in a Bible study may be out of your comfort zone. But all of us can come alongside younger disciples and share with them the truths of the Bible. And the question for us is, will you, will we seek to revive and rejoice and educate 
the disciples? Will we seek to warn and encourage and strengthen them younger in the faith than we are by watching over them, seeking their growth in prayer and sharing the scriptures with them to teach them the disciples sustaining truth of God? It's a desperate need for all of us. By the way, for those of you who send me Bible text once in a while, thank you very much. Keep doing it. Because you know what? I'm a disciple too. And sometimes your verses that you send serve to warn me and encourage me and strengthen me. I need it. Why do I send those verses out to you in mass texts? Because brothers and sisters, you need it too. So how do we make disciples? First, we make them by preaching the gospel. The gospel, the whole gospel, and nothing but Christ and Him crucified as the gospel. That's what we do. Second, we make disciples by exemplifying, setting the example of the gospel lived out. And thirdly, we make disciples by teaching the gospel, the biblical truth that revives and rejoices and enlightens and rebukes and encourages disciples. And we do it all only in the power of the Holy Spirit. We make disciples by following Jesus and Paul's example. Brothers and sisters, friends, if we would obey Christ's teaching and follow Paul's example in making disciples, we must first be living as disciples of Christ ourselves. The second part of the message is this, becoming disciples. What does it mean to be a disciple of Christ? When I consider Jesus' descriptions, I went through this week and spent some time in the Gospels looking at Jesus' description of what a disciple is and discipleship. I can look at my own life and my family in Christ, which you are. I find there are some things lacking. So I need to hear these challenges. And I'm convinced, as much as I know this flock which God has entrusted into our care as pastor and elders, I know that there are many here who need to hear these challenges as well. So first of all, have you responded to the call? Our Lord Jesus Christ both chooses and calls His disciples. He said in John 15 and verse 16, You did not choose Me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. In Matthew 4, 19, He said, Follow Me and I will make you fishers of men. My friends sitting here, listening and watching on You too, perhaps. Have you felt His call in your heart? A deep, heartfelt desire to be forgiven by God, to know God, to walk and talk and fellowship and love with God. And will you today respond to Christ's gospel call to come and follow Him, to be His disciple? Secondly, have you counted the cost? When Jesus described to His disciples what it meant to be a disciple, He called them to count the cost of following Him. The call to be His disciple is a high call, a costly call. In Luke 14 and verse 28, Jesus compared counting the cost of discipleship to one who is desiring to build a tower. Does He not first sit down and count the cost, whether He has enough to complete it, lest He start and not be able to finish? And brothers and sisters, I won't have you ignorant of what it means and what it will cost to follow Christ. I won't give in to the the pressure to preach an easy, believe, wonderful life, have your best life now type of gospel because it's a lie. 
without a submission to pay the cost, we cannot be his disciples. In Luke 14, verse 26, Jesus said, If we do not love Christ more than mom, dad, spouse, children, and even our own lives, we cannot be his disciples. Might you'll have a bad time, but you may not. You cannot. That's cold and hard, isn't it? But it's a truth we have to hear. There is the cost of self-denial. In Luke 9, 23 and 25, Jesus said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Following Christ will cost us our lives in this world, but it will gain us eternal life in the next. And as I, I quoted before, I think it was last week even, that English reformer who was being taken to be burned at stake. He said, far better one hour in the flames now than eternity in the flames afterward. It's a cost. Following Christ will cost us our lives. Brother and sister, my friend, have you counted the cost of following Christ? Are we willing, like Paul, to deny ourselves, to deny sin, to serve in order to be his disciples? There is a cost of persecution. In John 15 and verse 20, Jesus said, If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. In Acts 9 verse 16, this is all the circumstances surrounding uh, Paul's conversion. Jesus told Ananias that he would show Paul the things he must suffer for the sake of Jesus' name. From what we've seen in multiple chapters of Acts, To follow Christ is a call to suffering and persecution for the sake of the glory of His name. But we have this great reassurance from Romans 8 verses 35 to 39 that not even persecution or death can separate us from Christ. So friend, this morning, let me ask you again, have you counted the cost of being a disciple? You know, if I wanted to see lots of conversions and just pack this place full of people, I wouldn't preach like this. I'd just tell you about all the fun things about being a Christian. You know what the temptation... I was talking to another pastor from another church over in North Geelong, and he said, young people are going out and preaching the gospel, and they're quietly deleting things about the blood and about death and about suffering. And it's all about how to have a great life and how to really know who you are and all these self-fulfillment ideas. And he said, once they get them in, they kind of then start to sneak in the other part of the gospel. I won't do that. Jesus didn't do that. He told Paul around his conversion, these are the things that you will suffer. He told Isaiah, you're going to go out and preach the gospel for the rest of your life and nobody's going to listen. Off you go. And he went. And he wound up being sawn in half inside a hollow log for his faith in Christ. Friend, this morning, have you counted the cost? Because it's a high one. There's a cost of commitment to Christ. The call to be Christ's disciple is not a part-time job. It's a call to total commitment to Him. Yes, we still live lives in this world. Living, working, marrying, raising children, birthing and burying families. But the call to follow Christ is a call made to our entire lives to be lived in total to commitment to Christ. Jesus said in Luke 14, 33, Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. It's hard stuff. 
And trust me, it would be easier to preach the other stuff, but I can't. That's what the Bible teaches us. Have you and I considered the cost of following Christ? Brother, sister, friend, will you count the cost of following Christ of being a disciple? But beloved, I'm so glad it doesn't end there. Be encouraged in this. The cost is not all we must give thought to. There are also rich blessings in being Christ's disciples. So have we considered the blessings of being Christ's disciple? There's the blessedness of being united with Christ. In Matthew 12, 48, 46 to 50, while Jesus is speaking to people inside of a house, they tell him his human family is outside waiting to speak to him. But he, pointing to his disciples, said, Here are my mothers and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. You know what he's saying? The rich blessing of being united with Christ. I love my wife to bits. And I'm hoping for an exception to that rule about when you get to heaven, you're not married anymore. But I don't think it's going to happen. But here's the great truth. United with Christ for all eternity. When He invites us to come to Him and to take His yoke and bear it with Him, He invites us to come and puts His arm around us and our arm around Him. And we walk together with that yoke across both of our shoulders. And that united to Christ never ceases. And when the stones began to fall on Saul or Paul's head, and he began to feel either bones breaking and the cuts and the bruising and knocked him off his feet and probably knocked him unconscious, I wonder if the last thoughts that went through his mind were in Christ. That was his sounding call all through his gospel, all through his epistle writings. In Christ, with Christ. And he knew even in that moment, in that persecution, when those stones were raining down on top of him, nothing could separate him from Christ. And brother and sister, the call to discipleship is a call to be united with Christ for all of this life and all of eternity. That's a blessing. That's the blessedness of doing God's will. You go back to Psalm 1 and consider the blessings of living in godliness, the blessings of avoiding ungodliness in this life and perishing for the next, the blessing of delighting and meditating on His Word to do His will, the blessing of spiritual fruitfulness and prosperity, the blessing of walking and living in the way of the Lord. Friend, this morning, have you considered the tremendous blessing of doing God's will rather than the will of wicked sinful and scoffing men. That's a blessing. He calls us to it. There's a blessedness of rest for the weary soul. Listen to Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30. Jesus said, Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That text is a beautiful call to salvation and discipleship. If you're here this morning laboring and heavy laden under the load of sin that you bear, Christ is calling to you to come. And lay it on Him and know what it means to be forgiven, to know what it is to have that tremendous peace. Discipleship is also offered. Take my yoke. Learn from me. That's discipleship spelled out. 
And we do it when we're, the yoke, right? Like the old oxen yoke, it ties two things together. And taking his yoke ties us to Christ. My dear friend sitting here today, will you respond to the call of Christ to be his disciple? Will you come to him and lay your burden on Christ? You think my burden's too big? He can't bear that. He bore the weight of the sin of the world. He bore the full weight of his father's wrath against us. He can carry your burden. Will you share the load and learn from him? Will you count carefully the cost of following Christ? Will you consider the eternal blessings of following Christ as his disciple? For those of us who know Christ, but haven't been living as true disciples, here we are, stand together at the foot of the cross. And my call on us is leaving behind what is past. Will you today resolve by the power of the Holy Spirit to count the cost even now of being disciples, to consider the blessing of discipleship? And will you join me in denying yourself and picking up your cross again? and stepping again under the yoke alongside of Christ your Savior and finish the race well. You know, some of us have begun this Christian race poorly. Stumbling, faltering, start. Slipping and falling a little bit. And listen, anybody here remember that uh, Chariots of Fire? Ancient old movie back from the 80s. Yeah, some of you do. And one scene where Eric Little trips and falls and he picks himself up and he starts to run, and his head is down. And he's running, and he's running. And all of a sudden, his head goes back. And they say, that's, that's the point when you know he's really going to hit the afterburner. And he runs, and he passes everybody, and he wins the race. It doesn't matter if you stumble and fall. It does in some senses, but you know what? It's picking up, determining and resolving again in the power of the Holy Spirit, fastening your eyes on Christ who is the prize and running with all you've got to finish the race. Brother and sister who began poorly, will you join? Deny yourself, pick up the cross again, step under the yoke alongside of Christ your Savior and finish the race well, living and walking with Him. Where do we end with all of this? Christ. It's Christ. We're going to take and remember the Lord in just a few minutes. I want you to take your Bibles and go over to the book of Philippians. In Philippians 2 and verses 5 to 11, it occurred to me, this, I, was, I was laying in bed last night, suddenly remembered that we had communion today and thinking, how am I going to bridge the gap? And the Lord gave me this passage and I suddenly realized, in Christ, we have a perfect disciple displayed for us. Let's let's read the passage together. Uh, Philippians 2 and verses 5 to 11. You know it well. Paul writes and says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, 
so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He is the perfect disciple. In verse 7, he left everything behind. He laid aside his glory that he might obey his Father's command. That's discipleship. In Mark 10 and verse 45, he told his disciples that he did not come to be served, but to serve. That's discipleship. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And Hebrews 5 verse 8 tells us he learned obedience. He experienced obedience to a level you and I will never understand. But he learned and experienced obedience through the things that he suffered. That's discipleship. What was the end of it? Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Christ is the perfect disciple who made more, who made all disciples. He's the perfect disciple who called us to be his disciples and commissions us to go and make disciples. Will we obey? Because really, that's what it comes right down to. It's faith and obedience. We obey in faith. And in faith, we obey. They just go side by side, hand in hand. Brother and sister in Christ, as we stand here in a moment to give thanks and to take that little piece of bread, as you take it, remember. Remember Christ who obeyed by giving His all in perfect obedience to the Father. Remember Him and resolve today that by faith you will obey as He obeyed to the best of your ability. No, you won't obey perfectly like He did. I didn't mean that. What I mean is resolve to obey as best you can. As you take that little cup of juice and you look at that little cup of juice, take look at it and consider what you see there. The fruit of a crushed grape. Just as a grape was crushed to bring forth its fruit, so Christ was crushed. His soul was crushed and made an offering for sin. Your sin and mine. And remember what He suffered to set you free. And having been set free, we are to be made slaves to righteousness, slaves to obedience, slaves and servants and sons and daughters. What an amazing God we have. Amen. Would you stand with me? We're going to pray. And then what I'll do is I'll ask Mr. Taylor as well to come and give thanks for the bread. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, this morning we stand before You. And Father, I speak for some in this room who are standing here saying, Lord, I've, I've dropped the ball. I've let go of the race. I've slowed from my walk to a stop. But Father, this morning we resolve to step again behind Christ in faith. We resolve, O oh God, to deny ourselves, to pick up our cross and follow Him. 
having been made disciples, Father, we look to go and obey and make more. Father, for the one or two or more, and I'm certain they're here, Lord, that do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. Father, I plead with you that you would do your work in them, that they would have their eyes opened to see the gospel, to see the glory of Christ, to see the ugliness of their sin and hear the call, come. Come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Father, I pray that they would do exactly that, obey the call and come. Father, I plead with you for a work of your Holy Spirit this morning. And I do so in the precious name of Christ.